About 40 miles west of Topeka, Kansas, is a little town called Wamigo. Nestled a mile on its outskirts was a Cold War-era nuclear missile silo. But by the mid-1990s, the silo had been converted into something else entirely, a commune reminiscent of 1960s counterculture. The place had been retrofitted with Italian marble tiles, a jacuzzi, and a sound system worth close to $100,000. Llamas, chickens, and Clydesdale horses roamed underneath the nut, pine, and fruit trees that lined the front of the former military base. Sometime around 1998, psychedelic chemist William Leonard Picard decided to pay the commune a visit. As he met its members, Picard was likely amused with their tales of the kaleidoscopic trips. It reminded him of his previous hippie life. Picard abstained from dropping acid on his visit. Instead, he studied the base with increased fascination. He couldn't help but fantasize about what potential it had. Isolated from the small stretch of town and with plenty of space, this was the perfect place to cook LSD. Picard couldn't resist. In less than a year, the silo would become home to one of the largest LSD labs in the United States. His work there would solidify Picard's place in history as the Acid King. Welcome to Kingpins, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings from street gangs to mafiosos to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. You can find all episodes of Kingpins and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on William Leonard Picard, a.k.a. The Acid King. Last week, we covered Picard as he drifted between academia, incarceration, and illicit psychedelic cooking. We left off after his Mountain View bust in 1988, when he committed to going straight. At least, he claimed he would try. This week, we'll follow Picard as he builds a new, grandiose LSD lab out of a retrofitted Cold War silo. And we'll learn how his partnership with the silo's owner ultimately led to his undoing. Coming up, we'll trace Picard's bizarre trip through America's heartland. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Please note, several of the details in today's episode come from various sources that sometimes conflict with each other. While the core of the story can be independently verified, some of the more outrageous claims should be taken at face value. 
Throughout the 1980s, chemist and psychedelic enthusiast William Leonard Picard was constantly in and out of handcuffs. He had long been fascinated with the chemistry and effects of psychoactive drugs. He wanted to share their powers with the rest of the world. But in 1988, his Mountain View, California lab was raided by the authorities. As a result, Picard faced serious jail time. By the time he was released a few years later, the 47-year-old was convinced the time had come to straighten out his life. The fear of serving more time was enough to steer him away from a career in cooking. In an effort to redirect his passion for psychedelics, Picard defaulted to a realm similar to many of his chemistry predecessors, academia. Throughout the 1990s, Picard explored alternate avenues as he delved into drug research. He studied everything, from the designer drugs used by St. Petersburg millionaires to the effects of psychedelics on bipolarism. Eventually, he landed a prestigious position at UCLA's Drug Policy Research Program. It looked like Picard had finally found a legitimate path for his passion. But despite a deep dedication to his work, Picard's funding was sparse. Like many graduate programs, the research was contingent on generous donors. And like most of his scientific peers, Picard too was desperate for cash flow. But unlike his colleagues, he hadn't caught the curve on how to secure funding, and it affected his work. Picard appeared disinterested and spent very few hours in the office. His colleagues couldn't tell whether it was the actual lack of funding that discouraged him, or if, perhaps, his focus was just tied up elsewhere. But miraculously, lump sums of cash delivered in cigar boxes or FedEx envelopes suddenly appeared in both Picard's and his friends' research operations. All of their psychedelic projects now had hundreds of thousands at their disposal. It didn't go unnoticed. Rumors started to spread among Picard's peers that he was tinkering with a chemistry set again, and not in the name of honest science. But by the end of the 1990s, most of this was just quiet water cooler talk, whispered conjecture that hadn't been confirmed. But it was correct. Picard was cooking again. And more than that, he was redefining what it meant to mass-produce LSD. Of course, to make this happen, he'd also solicited some extra help. In 1998, William Leonard Picard met Gordon Todd Skinner, a fellow acid enthusiast. The two crossed paths in a hotel lobby in San Francisco during a research conference. The 33-year-old Skinner toted a large ZZ Top-style beard. According to a source interviewed for Rolling Stone, he looked like a combination of an Amish man and Bozo the Clown. He was well over 200 pounds and lived as if he had bottomless pockets. Skinner considered himself a connoisseur with a taste for psychedelics. He was even eager to cook himself. He frequented academic research conferences and made his play by offering grants to hungry scientists. Desperate as they were to get their careers off the ground, the enticing ploy usually worked. Some believe that the hotel lobby meeting between Skinner and Picard was pure coincidence, just a miracle of happenstance. 
others believe it was premeditated. Whatever the case, Skinner used it as an opportunity to dangle his financing in front of Picard. At the time of their meeting, the chemist appears to have been researching for the Division of Addictions at Harvard, and Picard still desperately needed funding. Skinner boasted about his high-end connections and celebrity relationships. Those allegedly included rock musician Sting and billionaire investor Warren Buffett. Picard was nearly salivating for an introduction to Buffett. He was convinced that he could wrangle an approximate $440,000 in research funding from the wealthy investor. All Picard needed was the meeting. But Skinner, who was something of a friendly snake, had other motives in mind. In reality, he had no intention of funding Picard's research or making any introductions. He was vying for Picard to set up an acid lab for him. And Skinner already had the perfect place for him to do it, Wamigo, Kansas. Two years earlier, Skinner took control of the Atlas E missile silo, about a mile outside of Wamigo, Kansas. He decided that he was going to establish a psychedelic commune. It's unclear how the 32-year-old had come into the kind of cash this required. He reportedly used traveler's checks to buy the silo for $40,000. However, the money seemed to just keep flowing from there. He furnished the missile silo to the nines, like something out of a psychedelic novel. Skinner was the only one in the commune with his own bedroom, and he slept on an oak bed mounted on a pedestal. Meanwhile, the other guests slept on mattresses scattered throughout the enclosure. Elsewhere on the silo grounds, the menagerie continued as llamas roamed around the large orchards. It was this portrait of freedom and free thinking that Skinner painted for Picard two years later in the San Francisco hotel lobby. He was trying to sell the chemist on his new take on the 1960s Kansas Commune. It worked. After hearing about the dreamlike base, Picard simply had to see this mecca for himself. The meeting with Warren Buffett could wait. Picard packed a bag and flew out to Kansas. From the moment he arrived, he was likely awestruck by the bizarre compound. His surprise, though, also had a tinge of discomfort. The base wasn't so much the psychedelic shrine Skinner had described. Picard recalled that the compound was more like a temple to the ego. It wasn't comfortable. The karma was wrong. However, Picard pushed the negative karma aside, at least temporarily. Later that year, he had moved past his reluctance and allegedly turned the silo into an LSD manufacturing lab. After all, even he couldn't deny that it was the perfect location to cook massive amounts of illicit drugs. The lab itself was buried within the cavernous innards of the compound. Any chemical odors that seeped out simply diffused across the acres of surrounding farmland. The compound had plenty of space for Picard to keep a sterile lab and mass-produce LSD. And no one was the wiser. After outfitting the lab, Picard enlisted his fellow chemist friend, Clyde Apperson, to hammer out a foolproof means of synthesizing the LSD. Then they planned to leave the formula in the hands of local chemists. Skinner would oversee the operation, 
and Picard would be free to head back to California with Apperson. It was a match made in psychedelic cooking heaven. All Picard needed was to hand over the recipe. But that was easier said than done. The process of synthesizing LSD is intricate and highly volatile. The setup of a proper lab requires an extensive knowledge of organic chemistry. Not to mention tools must be properly sterilized and whoever is cooking must have a keen sense of the danger at play. The hazardous properties of each ingredient mean personal safety is always at risk. For chemists like Picard and Apperson, personal endangerment came with the territory. They accepted it. Despite the meticulous protocols required, a normal-sized LSD operation can still be set up, the drugs synthesized, and the lab deconstructed all in a period of just about 10 days. But Picard didn't establish a normal-sized operation. He was cooking acid on a scale that was unlike anything before it. He cooked by the kilo. At that time, normal-sized operations were cooking by the gram, his operation quickly became the largest in the United States, if not the world. Picard was reportedly churning out millions of doses each week. An odd new world was born in Kansas. Outside, commune members laid around picking fruits, listening to the $100,000 sound system, and offering massages. No one was thinking about the fully functioning LSD lab that lurked deep within the silo. After the operation was up and running, Picard then returned to his academic life in California. But now, he was happier and clearly able to afford his research. Naturally, his colleagues were curious to know just where the money was coming from. But in his reinvigorated state, Picard would soon make a bad choice. Coming up, Picard's LSD manufacturing is threatened by an unlikely source. Hi listeners, I'm thrilled to tell you about a new Spotify original from Parcast that I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Ready to hear more? Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now back to the story. After setting up an LSD manufacturing lab in rural Kansas in the late 1990s, 54-year-old illicit chemist William Leonard Picard had found his cash cow. Finally, he could fund his academic research. Things were looking up, and even Picard was confident that he wouldn't fall into the same patterns that had gotten him caught in the 1980s. But Picard was a little too trusting, and his ultimate mistake would be putting his faith in the wrong man. Not long after the lab was up and running, his business partner, Gordon Todd Skinner, began to unravel. He grew increasingly distrustful of everyone around him. 
He was paranoid that he was being watched. Skinner tightened his security, making it nearly impossible to get in or out of the base without his knowledge. Multiple rooms of the missile silo were now off-limits to everyone, save for Skinner and his upper echelon. Picard thought he was overreacting. But by April of 1999, everything just evolved even further. Picard was on the phone with Skinner, listening to him recount his latest psychedelic trip. All of a sudden, Skinner stopped mid-story and said, I've got a problem. Call you back. Picard had an eerie feeling. A guest at the silo had suddenly overdosed. The accident would soon put the silo and Picard's entire operation in jeopardy. Paul Hulback was a 41-year-old Tulsa native visiting the commune when he overdosed. Skinner and Gunnar Guinan, the silo's groundskeeper, took matters into their own hands. They loaded the overdosed Hulback into their van and drove 30 miles to the hospital. Along the way, Skinner reportedly injected Hulback repeatedly with unknown substances in an attempt to revive his unconscious companion. But when they arrived at the hospital, Skinner nearly had a panic attack. Overwhelmed and paranoid, he refused to walk Hulback inside. Instead, he told Guinan to drive them back to the silo. Skinner then allegedly pumped Hulback with more injections. Frustrated and frightened that nothing would revive Hulback, Skinner once again changed his mind. Guinan was instructed to take Hulback to a different emergency center just five minutes from the silo. Why this hadn't been the first inclination, no one knows. But when they arrived, Hulback was pronounced dead. The autopsy report listed Hulback's cause of death as a multi-drug overdose. Naturally, this forced the local sheriff's department to head to the silo and investigate. When word reached Picard that law enforcement was investigating, though, he wasn't worried. He knew that they weren't going to find anything. After all, Skinner had time to clean the place. Picard claimed by that point the base had been sanitized of fentanyl, dilaudids, etc. The chemist was right. The sheriffs found no evidence of drugs or needles. Most importantly, they somehow found zero trace of the LSD lab. However, the incident had a ripple effect. It piqued the interest of the DEA. As it turned out, Skinner had been a person of interest to the DEA for years. Ironically, when Skinner had snitched to the agency years earlier, he'd essentially put a target on his own back. And they made sure to keep an eye on him as best they could. Hulback's death was practically an invitation for the DEA to disrupt Skinner's life and put Picard's operation in jeopardy. The DEA had plans to pin Skinner for manslaughter, but struggled to substantiate evidence for the charge. And Skinner himself reportedly testified that Hulback was immediately brought to the emergency center. They doubted his testimony, but still waited for their next chance to strike. Meanwhile, Picard decided it would be a good idea to distance himself from Skinner. Despite the attention Hulback's death brought, Skinner had continued to live large and recklessly. 
he forged a check, bought a Porsche, and then totaled the car. Picard knew it would be foolish to be seen with him. Picard summarized his decision, saying, This boy's got to slow down, because not a week goes by where there's not some sort of situation happening. There's no peace ever. Once again, the chemist was right. On January 8, 2000, Skinner was arrested at Harris Casino in Mayetta, Kansas, for impersonating a U.S. Treasury agent. The DEA jumped at the opportunity and took over the case. The agency claimed to have Skinner on charges of felony impersonation and money laundering through casino chips. And more, they even claimed to have evidence for Paul Hulbach's manslaughter. Skinner was able to secure his release on bail, but as the months dragged on, the DEA continued to squeeze his pressure points. After months of refusing to cooperate, Skinner soon accepted his fate. There was only one way to get out of the charges he faced. Luckily, he knew just how to do it since he'd done it back in the 1980s. Now, nearly 20 years later, Skinner would make the agency a deal. He baited the DEA agents with a lofty tale. There was an elaborate LSD lab operating at a scale far greater than the famed Mountain View Lab of 1988. And the best part of it, he told them, was that the very same man was the mastermind behind both. Skinner told the DEA he could give them William Leonard Picard, the Acid King himself. Which would be news to Picard, since his business partner's arrest had been the final straw. Picard recalled to Rolling Stone that, I decided it was best to step away from Skinner. He was unpredictable and kind of crazy. From mid-July until October, we had no contact. His life was unraveling. It was completely out of the blue then when Picard soon received a call from Skinner. The specifics of the call remain murky, but one thing was certain. Skinner indicated he'd be visiting Northern California in the near future, and Picard planned to stop by his hotel for a catch-up. Unbeknownst to Picard, the DEA was listening too and recording the entire conversation, and they were planning to spring a trap. On October 23, 2000, the 55-year-old Picard met with 36-year-old Skinner at the Sheridan Hotel in San Rafael, California. The chemist was unaware that the room was bugged and that the DEA was listening in on every word from next door. Unfortunately, the agency didn't get the dirt it was hoping for. Though Picard and Skinner discussed LSD, there wasn't anything too damning. At one point, Picard mentioned setting up an offshore lab somewhere in the future, but that was about it. All theoreticals. After about 30 minutes, Picard walked out of the hotel. He was still a free man and completely ignorant of the massive trap he'd narrowly avoided. But Skinner still had everything on the line, including felony charges for manslaughter. He was determined to catch his prey, considering that his livelihood hung in the balance. He wouldn't give up so quickly. Six days later, on October 29, 2000, 
Skinner phoned Picard, asking when Picard could come get the keys to the Dodge. This was a code phrase that the two used, meaning the lab. It's unclear exactly when Picard decided to move the silo lab, or if it was even his idea. It's possible that, with all of the heat surrounding Skinner, Picard thought it best to finally sever ties. Perhaps this was some of the LSD talk during their hotel conversation in San Rafael a few days earlier. It's also likely that Skinner was fishing for Picard's timetable so that he could give the information to his DEA handlers. Given these reasons were related, it makes sense that on October 31, 2000, the DEA showed up at the silo in Kansas with a covert entry warrant. After searching the grounds, agents found the LSD lab packed away into storage boxes. Despite being dismantled, the magnitude of Picard's operation was clear. Though the lab was ready to be transported, it was evident that to move all the equipment would be a multi-day affair. Now, they just have to wait for the king to show up to do the move. They didn't have to wait for long. Four days later, on November 4th, William Leonard Picard and Clyde Apperson arrived at the missile silo. With them was a rented 15-foot rider moving van and a silver Buick sedan. The two got to work immediately, completely unaware that just yards away, law enforcement was watching their every move. The time had finally come to take down the Acid King. Coming up, William Leonard Picard eggs law enforcement into a manhunt. Now back to the story. In early November of 2000, within the bowels of an old Kansas missile silo, 55-year-old William Leonard Picard and his accomplice, 45-year-old Clyde Apperson, began packing up their former LSD lab. Throughout the back half of 2000, Picard had grown suspicious of his business partner, 36-year-old Gordon Todd Skinner, and his erratic behavior. After a recent run-in with law enforcement, Skinner had put a major target on his back. By proxy, Picard was a target again, too. Picard and Clyde Apperson had one last job before cutting ties with Skinner. Pack up the Kansas lab. Traditional LSD labs can be disassembled and moved within a single day. Despite all of the chemistry equipment involved, glass beakers, tubes, chemicals, etc., it's still possible to get everything dismantled relatively quickly. But Picard's silo lab was so big that it took Picard and Apperson two full days to get everything inside the moving truck and securely fastened. Meanwhile, inside the Buick, Picard stashed six kilos of what the DEA thought to be ergotamine tartrate, or ET. This particular kind of alkaloid is key in making LSD. It's highly regulated and nearly impossible to obtain in the United States. Thus, it is also quite valuable. The materials Picard had in his Buick were reportedly worth an approximate $860,000 and there was enough to cook 15 million doses of LSD. Picard could sell those doses for up to $10 a pop. Finally, by the evening of November 6th, Picard and Apperson had the lab completely packed away. 
When they were ready to head out, Picard drove the Buick while Apperson was behind the wheel of the moving van. Allegedly, the plan was to make their way west towards Aspen. From there, they'd set up a new lab and get back to cooking. The hope was that by leaving in the late evening, the van and Buick wouldn't catch anyone's eye. Unfortunately, they didn't get very far. Thanks to Skinner's work as a rat, the DEA tipped off Kansas Highway Patrol to keep an eye out for Picard's caravan. Picard and Apperson had barely made it onto the main highway before they were spotted and instructed to pull over. As the Buick and moving van pulled over to the highway's shoulder, Picard evaluated his options. He was in the Buick, which meant he had the advantage of not driving the lab. However, he did have $860,000 worth of illegal LSD ingredients on him, and that could pose an even bigger problem than some glassware. Surrendering wasn't an option for Picard. There was only one thing he could do, run. The moment Picard brought the Buick to a stop, he jumped out of the car and took off straight into the Kansas woods. His silhouette disappeared into the darkness. But Apperson was too slow. Before he could even make it out of the car, law enforcement was all over him. Unbeknownst to Picard, Apperson's arrest ended up being the perfect distraction. While the police dealt with him, Picard was able to create distance. And so, the manhunt began. More than 50 law enforcement officials were called in to find Picard. Helicopters with infrared scanners flew over the woods, and hounds were released to pick up his scent. But the chemist was smart. He stayed out of sight and was careful to cover his tracks. By daybreak on November 7th, it seemed like Picard had all but disappeared. Later that morning, officers had moved into the town of Wamigo and the neighboring areas. They hoped that people saw Picard running or hiding in their backyards. Some officers even hid near the silo in case Picard backtracked. Then, after 18 hours of searching, the police received the tip they were hoping for. A local farmer had found Picard in the bed of his pickup truck. Law enforcement wasted no time. They found the truck and surrounded it. Thankfully, by that point, Picard surrendered without a fight. The 55-year-old Acid King was again in handcuffs. And this time, he faced far more time away from the outside world than when he was arrested back in 1988. While Picard and Apperson waited in their jail cells, the DEA seized everything inside the moving van and Buick. They claimed to have bagged and tagged approximately 41 kilos of ready-to-distribute LSD and 14 canisters of precursor chemicals, estimated to be worth over $1 million. It was the largest acid bust in the DEA's history. The men were soon charged, and a trial was set. Anticipating his day in court, Picard began to weave together his story. He'd claim that he was actually helping Gordon Todd Skinner. He'd shown up to destroy the lab. He certainly hadn't planned to use the equipment to start a new lab. Rather, his primary concern was saving his friend from mounting legal troubles. Picard would try to use his academic career as an alibi. 
He expressed it was nearly impossible for him to have cooked kilos while maintaining his research load. But according to his UCLA peers and co-workers, this alleged research had all but completely fallen off. In fact, reactions to his arrest by Picard's peers were split down the middle. Some influential people wrote to the DEA vouching for his innocence. Others, like his former professor and psychedelic advocate Sasha Shulgin, quickly distanced themselves. Many, though, weren't surprised. Academics were too seasoned in trends to believe that William Leonard Picard had actually gone straight after his 1988 Mountain View bust. Picard's trial didn't start until the beginning of 2003, and it lasted roughly 11 weeks. One of the prosecution's star witnesses, of course, was Gordon Todd Skinner. For over 10 days, he took the stand and spewed incriminating evidence relating to his ex-partner and the operation. And while Skinner's testimony played a crucial role against Picard, it wasn't the most damning information that was heard. Instead, it was the evidence that revealed that Picard had been cooking LSD for far longer than anyone believed. As early as 1996, Picard and Clyde Apperson had allegedly set up labs throughout the United States, including in Oregon, Colorado, and New Mexico. New Mexico, in particular, proved to be one of their most profitable laboratories. As it turned out, that Southwest retreat, when Picard had helped a fellow acid enthusiast get through a bad trip, was also a business expedition. Picard and Apperson were there to covertly establish a new lab. And, according to the DEA, every five weeks, the New Mexico lab produced one kilo of acid. By that outlet alone, Picard and Apperson were producing two million doses of acid each week. When information of the New Mexico lab was revealed, Picard and Apperson had no real defense left. After all, the Kansas Silo Lab was much, much bigger. And the fact that they were caught red-handed with the equipment was only more proof of their role in operating the massive LSD manufacturing operation. There was no other angle to use, no excuse left to make. On March 31, 2003, the trial of 58-year-old William Leonard Picard and his LSD kingdom came to its end. In Topeka, Kansas, U.S. District Judge Richard D. Rogers sentenced him to life in prison without parole. The reign of the Acid King was over. But being relegated to a life behind bars didn't mean Picard had given up his fight. He still had proxies. The king had accrued a large fan base. It began petitions for Picard's freedom. People even created the Free Leonard Picard website to garner support for his cause. As for Picard himself, he wanted to use his friend Skinner to help potentially lead to some kind of reprisal. By then, Picard was aware that Skinner had cut a deal with the DEA. It made sense given the manslaughter charges Skinner faced. But Picard was desperate for the details of the betrayal. In 2006, Picard filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against the DEA. He demanded information on Gordon Todd Skinner and the deal he struck with the agency. 
The DEA responded by saying that they could neither confirm nor deny Skinner's involvement. But given that he was serving a life sentence, Picard had nothing to lose and all the time to spend chasing after the agency. He and a team of pro bono attorneys flooded the courts with appeals and notices. They searched tirelessly for a crack in the system. That crack did finally come, albeit a decade later. On May 2, 2016, a federal magistrate ruled that some of Picard's requested documents had to be released under the Freedom of Information Act. While the information didn't do much in terms of forging a path to early release, it did give Picard some peace of mind. Winning a lawsuit against the U.S. government was a small consolation prize. Plus, Picard knew that Skinner had been behind bars since late 2003 on unrelated kidnapping charges. The files he received proved that he wasn't able to cut any more deals with the DEA. Trapped behind bars forever, Picard took his victories where he could get them. Except when he'd nearly resigned himself to prison, an opportunity suddenly presented itself. In 2020, Picard faced the opportunity for parole under the most unimaginable circumstances, the COVID-19 pandemic. In the wake of the first onslaught of the coronavirus pandemic, prisoners across the United States were granted early release if they were considered high risk for catching the disease. With this in mind, 74-year-old William Leonard Picard filed a petition. At the end of July 2020, his petition was granted. As of July 27th, Picard has been a free man. Whether or not he's jumped right back into his old tricks and is using the time in isolation to experiment with his chemistry sets is anyone's guess. As a persona, William Leonard Picard as the Acid King is accurate. Though many details have yet to be revealed, more LSD came from Picard than anywhere else. The DEA reported that once Picard was incarcerated, there was a 95% reduction in domestic production of LSD. But what really makes Picard's nickname true was the scale of his operation. The output of his labs across the United States was, and remains as far as we know, unmatched. For comparison, consider the operation by famed mass LSD cooker Tim Scully. Scully cooked LSD from 1966 to 1969 and became famous for his orange sunshine LSD tablet. In his three years of cooking, Scully produced roughly one kilo of LSD total. When Picard was arrested in 2000, the DEA claimed to have confiscated 41 kilos of LSD. At the height of his career, Picard produced more than Scully ever had each week. But the quantity of his operation wasn't what really mattered. For Picard, it was always about sharing the psychedelic experience with others. He sought to bottle that counterculture feeling he'd experienced in his youth and to keep passing it along. In a way, William Leonard Picard became the last psychedelic mastermind born out of the love generation.
Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Malia Graska, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. Listeners, don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.